We are in our series tonight, back in Route 66, that we've been in for several weeks now on Wednesday nights, and this is our last one for a little while as we will go to our Christmas party next week, then we'll have several weeks off, and one of those weeks being our ski trip, for those of you going on that, and uh, then we will come back and reconvene in the new year and pick up in First Kings, but tonight we are in Second Samuel. Remember the goal of this series. The goal of this series is to see the forest as a whole. All right, we spend most of our time in the trees, so to speak, as we open up the Word of God and we go verse by verse through the Scriptures and all of the different venues here on this campus and different ministries that take place here. But we wanted to take a step back and we wanted to look at the forest as a whole, and we wanted to trace the themes that we find, the preeminent and the predominant themes that we find in the Scriptures, and see the cohesiveness of, of the Word of God, and see the, the divine nature of the Word of God, because it has been breathed out by God. And we have come in this series to the point where Israel has asked for a king, and they have been granted a king after being chosen by God early in the book of Genesis, and then wandering through the wilderness after being freed from Egyptian slavery, then being judged and walking through a sin cycle over and over and over again, and now they've come to a place where they've asked for a king, they've been given a king, and we saw last week that the first king that they were given was a king who, from a human perspective, is everything you could want in a, in a king. And that king, Saul, did not work out, and so God stripped Saul of his kingship, and he made David king. When we think of the book of 2 Samuel, we want to think of the life of David. Life of David. And that's simply what I want to do through this book is I want to organize our thoughts under three headings to help us see the life of this godly earthy, earthly king who serves this time in history as God's vice regent on the planet and over the nation of Israel particularly. And so let's begin by thinking through this first heading, which I have entitled the the God-centeredness of the king. The God-centeredness of the king. As I have already mentioned, David was different than Saul. Saul was everything you could want, humanly speaking. But David, as we know from chapter 16, was a man, 1 Samuel 16, and he was a man after God's own heart. David was God's king. He was God's king that he put into place and and that began to take place there at the end of 1 Samuel <clears throat> as David was gaining prominence. He was gaining stature in the eyes of the people. He had accomplished great things. Right? He had taken down Goliath. He had conquered the Philistines. <clears throat> he, he had killed several thousand people as a great warrior. The people loved David. And so you could see the tide turning, you could see the shift happening, and, and so you get that all the way up to the end of 1 Samuel, 
And then 2 Samuel is where things really unfold for this man. And, and so we see, first of all, the God-centeredness of this king. As God was making David king of Israel, we, we see this unfold in several ways, this, this God-centered perspective of this king. The first way is that he did not embrace evil, but trusted in Yahweh to exalt him. And that's going to unfold in several different ways. The beginning of 2 Samuel, the storyline begins with an Amalekite coming and telling David that Saul and Jonathan are dead. This Amalekite apparently wanted to be praised by David, possibly wanted some kind of reward from David. And so he comes and tells him that this has happened. And it says there, uh, David asked this young man, he said, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead there in verse 5? He said, the young man who told him, said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind me, he saw me and called to me, said, here I am. He said to me, who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I, the Amalekite, stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. I, was, I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. David could have rejoiced at this moment, right? Throughout 1 Samuel, Saul and David became mortal enemies. <laughs> As David gained in his accolations and his praise of the people, Saul wanted to dismantle David, who wanted to destroy David. And so often he went after David's life to the point where David had to go and live in the wilderness for, for, for several months and years and uh, even joined with some of his enemies who protected him from Saul. And so, so David, hearing this, hearing this, should, humanly speaking, have rejoiced. My enemy's dead, of course. The things that God said is coming to pass. But we see his integrity here. We see that he did not embrace the evil of this Amalekite. Look at verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so also did the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? He answered, I am the son of an alien Amalekite. And David, by the way, alien, not outer space, alien, foreigner. Then David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David called one of the young men and said, Go cut him down. So he struck him down and he died. David said to him, Your blood is on your head. Through your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. See David's his, his immense integrity in this. As this Amalekite, again, really did David a favor. <laughs> And David could have rejoiced, but he didn't rejoice in the evil because he knew that God had placed Saul where he had placed him until the, until the time that God had appointed. And so for someone to come take the, the life of God's anointed was not okay. It was evil. It was wicked. And David did not rejoice in that. He did not reward the Amalekite who delivered the message about Saul's death. Instead, he mourned the death of Saul and he mourned Jonathan and he mourned the people who were killed in, in the battle. Now that Saul is dead, David seeks the Lord who tells him to go up to Hebron and 
is anointed king of Judah by the men of Judah. And we see that unfold in, in chapter 2. But Abner, Abner is Saul's commander, the commander of his army. He didn't go along with what was happening with David. He decided to make Ishbosheth, Saul's son, king over Israel. And so the kingdom was not established at this point in terms of David reigning in Jerusalem. That happens here shortly. But David was gone up to, he, he consulted the Lord. The Lord said, go up to Hebron. And he was then made king over Judah. Well, at the same time, Ishbosheth was made king over Israel. And so the situation remained for a couple of years. And then this civil war in, ensued between these two camps. But David's grip on the entire nation grew. God kept giving him great favor in this time. And as David's prominence grew, and as Abner realized Ishbosheth was not a man of integrity, and Abner decided to join David in chapter 3. And they talked and they got together. Joab was David's commander of the army. Joab did not think that Abner was above board and what he was doing. And so Joab found a way to not let this joining of David and Abner happen. And it resulted in Joab murdering Abner, which is documented in chapter 3, verse 26. It says, when Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sarah, but David did not know it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the middle of the gate to speak to him privately, and there he struck him in the belly so that he died on the account of the blood of Ashael, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and may it not fail from the house of Joab, one who has a discharge or is a leper or who takes hold of a, uh, of a distaff, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashel to death in the battle of Gibeon. And so we see that Joab also had other motives. Is him, you know, that Abner had killed his brother when the civil war had, had ensued. And, and so Joab kills Abner. Again, you could make the point that David should rejoice in the fact that his Enemy, so to speak, Abner was the commander of Saul's army, is now dead. And he doesn't. This leads to the second example of David embracing, not embracing evil, but rather trusting Yahweh, which is he did not rejoice in Abner's death. Instead, he mourned Abner. And you see that in verse 31. David tells Joab and all the people who are with him, tell your clothes and gird on sackcloth with limit and lament before Abner. And it goes on to show that David mourned the passing of Abner. He refused to embrace evil to exalt himself. The third example of David's refusal to embrace evil comes right on the heels of Abner's death there in chapter 4. And it is this, he did not reward Rahab and Bana for killing Ishbosheth. Because you see, after Abner had died... Ishbosheth he began to deteriorate in the eyes of the people. It says in verse 1 that 
he heard that Abner had died in Hebron. He lost courage and all Israel was disturbed. And then his commanders there decided, you can see in verse 5, it says, So the sons of Rimmon, the, the Barathite, Rechab and Bana, departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. And they came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly, and Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. Now when they came into the house, as he was lying on his bed in the bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him, and they took his head and traveled by way of the Arab all night. <clears throat> they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, and thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. David answered, Rechab and Bana, his brothers, sons of Rimmon and the Barathite, said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziglag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded the young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hung them upside down in the pool of Hebron. They took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. Again, David should have been like, Thank you. Ishbosheth, the enemy is gone. I mean, he was the rival king of the same people. But that's not how David thought. That's not how David lived. David was a man after God's own heart. And he trusted in Yahweh to bring to pass his kingship. When he was anointed king, he knew that on Yahweh's terms and in Yahweh's time, he would become the king of this people. You just see how his heart fully trusted in God. We need to fully trust in God, don't we? We need to realize that when circumstances may not be lining up the way that we think, that God is still sovereign, still in control. He is going to fulfill his promises, and he is trustworthy. He is going to bring to pass everything that he has declared. And we don't need to figure out ways to manipulate the situation. We don't need to go about doing evil things or rejoicing in evil to somehow gain an, an upper hand on some kind of situation or maybe an enemy, as was the case for David. He trusted. He was centered on God. He loved God. He wanted to honor God. So he did not turn to evil, but rather waited for Yahweh to accomplish his purposes, and then he responded accordingly. And David became King, this leads to a second expression of David's God-centeredness, which is this, he desired to honor God's name. He desired to honor God's name. We see several examples of this in the next handful of chapters. This is seen first in the fact that he brought the ark to Jerusalem. He brought the ark to, to Jerusalem. After David, after Ishbosheth rather, was, was murdered, David mourned him. David was then made king over all Israel in, in chapter 5. 
And he fought the Philistines. God gave him victory over the Philistines. Then in chapter 6, he, he desired to honor God's name. And so he wanted to bring this ark to Jerusalem, where he was now establishing his kingdom. The Ark of the Covenant was God's presence manifested to Israel. And David desired to bring the Ark to Jerusalem where he reigned as king. After this victory that took place in chapter 5 over the Philistines, David went with the people to Baal Judah, which is where the Ark was. And they began the journey to bring this Ark to Jerusalem. Now, as the story unfolds, we learn a couple of important theological truths about the presence of God in verses 5 through 7. Look at those with me. So they're bringing the ark. That's verse 4. They brought the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Pick it up in verse 5. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir, wood, with with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God." First thing we understand theologically about the ark is that God's presence produces joy. That's verse 5. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments. It's almost like this worship service was taking place as this ark was being transported to the place where David had set up his kingdom there in Jerusalem. They're rejoicing. It was a good thing. This was supposed to be happening. You could say that the people were living in submission and obedience in this act of bringing the ark to Jerusalem, the the presence of God. So there's joy in God's presence. God's presence produces joy. But second, we see that God's presence produces fear. In verses 6 and 7, As Uzzah took matters into his own hands when the oxen tripped, you wonder why such a brutal response by God to this man in the midst of this joy, in the midst of them doing what they were supposed to do. They they were moving the ark to the place where it was supposed to be. Why such a brutal response in in humanly, humanly speaking? Why would God do this? Why would Uzzah be killed? Why would the anger of the Lord burn against him? Well, it says there it's because of his irreverence. The ark was to be carried by the Levites. It was not to be touched. It was to be brought on these poles, and it was to be done a certain way. There was a prescription that had been laid out in the law of how this was supposed to be transported. Uzzah took matters into his own hands and he touched the ark. And so we could say that God's presence produces fear when his people are living in rebellion and disobedience because ultimately that's what Uzzah did. He was rebellious in that moment. God's honor 
was on display in his killing of this man who irreverently messed with his presence, so to speak. We learn a lot from that. We learn a lot about the holiness of God, don't we? That when we approach God, we must approach him as holy. We, we see this in several instances in the Bible. You see this with the guys in Leviticus 10, sons of Aaron, who had conjured up strange fire before the Lord, it says. They worship God in a way that wasn't prescribed by God. You see this in the New Testament with the guys lying there in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, and God striking them down. God is perfectly holy. He's not to be trifled with. We're not to ever tempt him or test him. We have to look at him for who he is and understand that, that when we trifle with a holy God, we need to be fearful of his response. You see, the world who's living in rebellion against God is trifling with his holiness every day. Because God is also gracious, he's, he's not striking down humans every single day like that. But one day, his holiness will be exalted to the fullest extent. When those who have rejected him, his son, they will be met face to they will meet they will meet this holy God face to face and he will strike them down. They will no longer be able to trifle with him. God's presence produces fear. After realizing that God's presence also produces blessing in the next few verses, is David got angry and so they made a little pit stop, dropped off the ark. <laughs> And then realize, this guy's getting blessed. <laughs> Let's get the ark. Bring it back to Jerusalem. So they bring it back to Jerusalem, and that's when we see another example of David's desire to honor God's name. It's kind of a, it's kind of a weird experience here in 2 Samuel 6. It's a strange thing. But David's desire to honor God's name is through this, through he praised Yahweh through his service as a priest king. He praised Yahweh through his service as a as a priest king, and we see that unfold there. Pick up in verse 11, Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And I was told David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him. On account of the ark of God, David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he offered an ox as a fatling. We sacrificed to the Lord there in verse 13, and God didn't strike him dead, so he, he was operating as a priest. Right? Priests were the ones who, who were the ones who did the sacrifices. And, and so David is in this instance seen as, as a priest, verse 13, as he offers this sacrifice out of gladness to the Lord. 
Verse 14, then, and David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Well, linen ephods were worn by priests. So here he was, this priest king, praising Yahweh in the midst of the people for what Yahweh had accomplished in bringing the ark of God to Jerusalem. And this worship of Yahweh made Michael, David's wife and Saul's daughter, angry and embittered toward David. And you see that there in verse 16. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came in the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. She was angry. It's just kind of a weird interaction. But in this interaction, because David's heart was following Yahweh, we see God exalting the lowly David, remember, which he promised in Hannah's song, as Garrett mentioned last week, that the Samuels are bookend between, they're bookended between Hannah's song and David's song. Hannah's song at the beginning of 1 Samuel, David's song at the end of 2 Samuel. In both of those songs, it praises Yahweh, they praise Yahweh for his, his bringing up of the lowly, his exalting the lowly. And so we see that on display here as God is exalting the lowly David. And what is he doing? He's humbling the proud Michael. Taking us back again to those book and songs that rejoice in Yahweh's promise to exalt the humble and bring down the proud. We also see God's promise then to eliminate the house of Saul completely in that he closes Michael's womb and makes her barren. It's an amazing, amazing thing how God brings this all together and how, how it just kind of comes to the surface, this, this man who God was raising up for his purposes. Well, we must move on. We see another example of David's desire to honor God's name and the fact that he desired to build a house for God. So certainly a good desire that David had, but God said no. God said no. Instead, God established a covenant with David in verses 11 through 16 of chapter 7, promising that David's kingdom would be established forever, which again put Yahweh's power on display and his ability to exalt the lowly. Hopefully you were here on Sunday when Dr. Murphy was mentioning this. He talked about 2 Samuel 7. And the reality that David said, I'm going to build you a house, God. And God says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. I am going to be the one who exalts. You're, you're not going to somehow raise yourself up in exaltation. I am going to exalt you and thus put my name on display. And so he makes this covenant with David here. And I'll comment more on this in a moment. But he desired to build a house for God, a good thing. He wanted to see God's name honored. Another example of David desiring to honor God's name comes in chapter 9, where he honored Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. In, in chapter 9, says David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I must show kindness? That's Hesed, that he must show uh, the loyal love that God 
has for us. I must show that to, for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. They called him to David, and the king said, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul whom, to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba, Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Emil of, Labar, uh, of Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Emil from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. You shall eat from my table regularly. So certainly a good desire that David had. He was loyal. He was full of integrity. He wanted to show the hesed of God to his friend's son, even though his friend's family was his enemy. 2 Samuel 9 is an amazing chapter. We're just covering it in a few seconds tonight. You need to spend some time with 2 Samuel 9 because this is an incredible picture of the steadfast love of God that he has manifested to us, his enemies. David didn't have to show Mephibosheth anything. The house of Saul was being cut off. This was clear, and it was communicated to David. David was now the king, and it was his. He had just received this covenant from Yahweh that his kingdom was going to be eternal. It was going to be forever and ever. But David, because he was a man after God's own heart, and he had the heart of God, desired to show this kindness to his friend's son, who happened to be his, his enemy's son. That's what God has done for us, isn't it? He's manifested his love for us. While we were yes sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us with a loyal love. While we were hostile towards him, alienated toward him, doing evil deeds against him. He saved us in his mercy. He reached down and pulled us out of the pit of mire and muck and the devastation of our sin, and he pulled us up, made us co-heirs with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. All because... He is a God who is full of steadfast love and mercy. When you're sitting here tonight, I'm standing here tonight only because of the steadfast love of God towards us, his enemies. It's good we reflect on that. It's good we think about that. David gives us a great picture of what that looks like, humanly speaking. I might just say at this moment, if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, well then, the steadfast love of God is it's not applied to you. 
In fact, you're going to receive the penalty for your rebellion against him and your rejection of him. And you're going to receive the eternal wrath of God. You're going to be separated from God for all of eternity if you've rejected coming to him on his terms. And so there's no better time than to say, listen, you need to come to this God whose love is steadfast. You need to come to this God who who demonstrated his love to you while you were still a sinner and sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die the death that you deserve to die because of the sin debt that you owe. You need to respond to this God of steadfast love and repentance and faith, turning to him alone for salvation. If you do that, if you come to this God of steadfast love on his terms, that steadfast love will never cease from showering you. It will be ongoing for all of eternity. And so if you don't know Christ, come to him and experience the eternal steadfast love of God. Well, a fourth example of David desiring to honor God's name is seen in chapters 8 and 10 where he crushed God's enemies. He crushed God's enemies. He dismantled the Philistines, the Ammonites, and the Arameans. You see, David loved the things which God loved, and he hated the things which God hated. And he responded appropriately. Because these nations had spurned the God of Israel, they were to be eliminated And so David went out as God's servant and he dominated them. That was his responsibility. He crushed God's enemies because he loved God and the things of God and he hated the things which God hated. This is the God-centeredness of the king. He was consumed with honoring Yahweh, with loving Yahweh, with living his life before Yahweh. This then leads us to a second facet of David's life seen in this book, which is the exact opposite of his God-centeredness, and that is the grievous sin of the king. The grievous sin of the king. In the second half of the book of 2 Samuel, we see David sin in multiple ways. We see his response to that sin, and we see the consequences of the sin, and then we see the grace of God poured out. David's first sin is recorded there in chapter 11, and you're familiar with it, his sin with Bathsheba. We'll call this the stark details of the sin. You see there, this is a This is like an about face in the Hebrew language there in verse 1 of chapter 11. Then it happened. In the spring at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Reba. But, massive contrast, David stayed at Jerusalem. Early in the spring... Would have been the end of the rainy season. It would make the roads possible to be traveled on. There would be plenty of food for the 
animals that they rode. And so that's when kings would go out to battle and seek to conquer their enemies. It's where David was supposed to be. But David stayed in Jerusalem. He was supposed to be leading the troops in the battle, but he was taking it easy. And you have to, you have to wonder, is it because he felt that he had arrived? When you look at the end of verse 10. When all the kings, servants of the days are saw, they were defeated by Israel. They made peace with Israel and they served them. So the Arameans feared to help sons of Ammon anymore. I mean, David had just, right before that, talks about all the people that they had struck down. You could say David was on cloud nine as a king, couldn't you? He was experiencing God's favor in a massive way, a very visible, tangible way as he was conquering his enemies. He had been so faithful to Yahweh, hadn't he? Doing what he had been called to do. He had had resisted in in rejoicing. Over the death of his enemies, he he had pushed back against the the temptation to manipulate a situation to, to exalt himself. He had crushed God's enemies. Yahweh had made a covenant with him. An everlasting covenant, I might add. And so David takes it easy. So much, so, so many practical things here in this story. I've walked through this with the guys before, but this is a very practical story to look at and understand how sin works. David, you know, sin, sin often finds us when we are not where we are supposed to be and we are not doing what we are called to be doing. Right? We know our marching orders. The Bible's clear. We need to live in obedience to Christ. We need to live our lives for the glory of God. We need to be good stewards of our time, our resources, everything we do. And when we decide to rebel against that in any way, we set ourselves up for disaster. So there was David. Supposed to be out conquering more armies. But David stayed at home. Was, What's he doing? Now when evening came, David arose from his bed. <laughs> now when evening came and David rose from his bed? Dude was laying around all day. Why wouldn't he? He's the king, right? So he didn't go out where he was supposed to be out. He wasn't doing anything profitable while he stayed back home. He was in his bed all day. He rose from his bed and he walked around the roof in the king's house. And there from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. You know, that look that we so often have at sin that we're supposed to look away from and move on, that look turned into a gaze. And you see that, verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. One said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers, took her, and when, he, when she came to him, he lay with her. When she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Very, very small sum of verses, but a massive, massive breach in the life of King David. 
In fact, a breach in the life of King David that would have unending consequences on his life and upon his family. He sent, he looked, he saw, just like the Garden of Eden, right? Look, saw it, took it, ate it. Saw her, took her, had sex with her, not his wife. In fact, she was the wife, we find out, of Uriah the Hittite. One of, the, one of his mighty men. One of the greatest men in his army. One of the greatest men in the nation of Israel. And he took her. And he committed adultery with her. And at that point, obviously, as we all should, when we sin, we must come to God and confess and repent, right? <laughs> but what do we do so often? We compound one sin with another sin. Right? It becomes a snowball effect for whatever reason. Or maybe we enjoyed the sin, so we want to keep going in that sin. Or maybe we're too fearful to deal with the sin with somebody else, with our own hearts before God. Whatever the case may be, it turns into this snowball effect. All of a sudden, you're compounding sin. And for, for David, he didn't want people to find out because a wrench gets thrown into the story, right? A woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Not the words David wanted to hear. Not what he was thinking when he was laying on his bed all day and then walking up on the roof doing his thing. He was overcome by lust, looking to fulfill his fleshly desires. So he did that. All of a sudden, consequences begin to unfold in this man's life. So what does he do? Instead of coming clean and dealing with it before God and before Uriah and before the, the nation, he compounds his sin. He tries to get Uriah to come back to cover it up. Uriah doesn't fall for that. Not because he knew, he just was an honorable man. He said, I'm not going to go do this thing. My, my soldiers are out laying outside. You want me to go home with my wife? I'm not that kind of guy. I'm a leader of this army. I'm going to do this. And then David tries to get him drunk. <laughs> Send him back home, do the same thing. Uriah doesn't do it, so what does David do? Well, he tells Joab, hey, stick him in the front of the army. Pull back. So he gets struck down and he dies. Joab had to be thinking, what? What is going on? But he's the commander of the king's army, so he's going to do what the king says. And we know how that unfolds. The whole thing happens. Uriah dies. David thinks he is good to go. For about nine months, because everything else unfolds about nine months later. You see, sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. We have to hammer that in our brains. We have to embrace that with our souls. That sin is not worth it. It's just not worth it. And it has dire consequences. So the nine months went. I want you to note second, the sobering repentance from the sin. The sobering repentance from the sin. We don't have time to read through the story, but you know that David gets rebuked by the prophet Nathan. Nathan tells him a parable. It infuriates David. He tells him, you know, that man needs to be dealt with. Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man, David. 
You're the man of the parable. You're the key character here, buddy. And God uses that conviction to strike a chord in David's heart, and David begins to repent. Psalm 51, Psalm 32. Hope you spend time in those psalms often. They're good places to be as you walk through your sin in your own life. It shows us what repentance is to look like. Confession, the actual act of repentance, the turning away from the sin, the forsaking the sin, the not going back to the sin, the willing to make restitution for the sin, the willing to endure, the willingness to endure the consequences of sin, trusting in God's forgiveness. Those are keys to biblical repentance. We don't have time to just camp there. I would camp there. I would stay there. But confession, repentance, forsaking the sin, being willing to make restitution, being willing to endure the consequences, trusting in God's forgiveness, those are all key components to true repentance. Those are the opposite of worldly repentance, which is just being sorry for your sin, usually sorry because you got caught. Then we see the, so, the substantial consequences of the sin. Chapter 12 carries on. This, this carries on all the way through chapter 20. It begins with the death of his child there in chapter 12, verses 15 through 23. God tells David, you're forgiven, you're going to live, but your, your son is going to die. The son gets sick after he's born. So David prays and fasts before the Lord, begs the Lord to spare his life, and his, you know, his servants don't go near him. He refuses to eat. And then the child dies, and the Servants are scared that David's going to harm himself. (laughs) And David gets up, cleans himself, takes food, and they're just baffled by this. Well, what's the deal, David? Well, why this reaction? He said, well, while the child was alive, I thought the Lord might be merciful and spare him. But now that the child has died, I know that I won't see him again here, but I'll go to him one day. See him trusting even in the divine providence of God in the midst of his sin that cost him a lot, but his son dies. Then you see the dismantling of his family. I'm just going to mention these. Chapter 13, Amnon, his his son, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Well, that infuriates Absalom, Tamar's brother, who avenges Tamar by killing Amnon there in chapter 13, verses 20 through 39. Then you have in chapters 14 through 16, Absalom conspires against his father David to take over the kingdom. So here you have these massive consequences unfold, and and God told David, these are going to be your consequences. Your family is going to be dismantled. It's interesting, in chapter 16 is, you know, this conspiracy has erupted after all of this time has unfolded, and I'm skipping a lot of this portion of, of the story, but, but it comes to this point where Ahithophel, who was David's counselor, Absalom kind of pulls him over as he's conspiring against his father, and, and Ahithophel begins to, to give Absalom advice, which is helpful advice for, for him to overtake his father. And he continued to gain more traction with the people and listening to this advice, and he advised David there at the end of chapter 16, to go and have sexual relations with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. That was 
to show that he was dominating his father. I have taken over the place of my father. You know, as Absalom did that, what's very interesting, though, is that was a fulfillment of what God's said his discipline upon David's sin would be, as he announced in chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. He said, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you and your own household. I will make your wives, and I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Massive consequences. David's sin cost him a lot. We'll notice fourth in chapter 17 to 20, the sustaining grace of God. In the midst of the consequences, God's grace becomes apparent to David, the man after his own heart. There's several portraits of this grace that we see. I'm just going to mention them. God thwarts Absalom's advance with Hushai's counsel. This is a wonderful verse. I'm just going to read this verse in chapter 17, verse 14. This whole thing was unfolding. It says, Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord, Yahweh, had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. And so in God's grace, he now overcomes David's new enemy, who happens to be his son, then you have Absalom's death in chapter 18, verses 1 through 32. And then again, David should be happy with that, humanly speaking. But God humbles David through his grief in verses 33 through 34. Then God restores David's kingship in chapter 19. Then God thwarts Sheba's revolt in chapter 20. Then God gives closure to the Saul kingship era, avenging the Gibeonites in chapter 21. And then David worships God for his protection and his steadfast love in verses 22 through 23. Notice the progression. Sin, repentance, consequences, grace, worship. So much in the life of David. I challenge you to read through this book even, even this week. It's amazing just to see these things unfold. What's wild is you get to the end of verse, <laughs> chapter 23 where you have David's, David's song. And you think that should probably be the close. But then you have chapter 24 and we see the exact same pattern again unfold in chapter 24 in David's life. You have the second sin of the king, which he takes this census. Why does he take a census? Because his heart becomes prideful. And he wants to say, Lord, look what I've done. Look, look at all these people who are a part of my kingdom. He's confronted by that. So you have the sobering repentance from the sin there in chapter 24, where he says, verse 10, now David's heart troubled him after he numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly what I've done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've acted very foolishly. And so it goes through his repentance, his confession, his repentance again through verse 14. And then you see the substantial consequences of this sin, which is just massive. 
Verse 15, David, God gave David a choice there in verse 13. He said, um, seven years of famine shall come to your land, or you will flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, or three days pestilence in your land. David got the choice. God said, I'm going to punish you in one of these ways. You choose. Difficult choice. David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall in the hands of men. Trust in Yahweh even in this decision. And so he chose pestilence. Verse 15, the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel for the morning till the appointed time. And look at this, 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. That's a massive consequence to sin. 70,000 people. Because David raised his heart up in pride to God. You should see these examples of the, of the holiness of God being manifest in these ways of saying, listen, you're not going to treat me in an unholy manner. David gets that firsthand. And so these people die. Verse 18. So God came to David, and here's we see the sustaining grace of God. Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So he did this. Down to verse 25, David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by the prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. The grievous sin of the king. Mention one more thing to you as we close. That's number three. That's the great hope of the coming king. I wanted us to go back and spend a minute in chapter seven. Let me just mention it. God makes in the promise that God makes in his covenant with David, he, he makes this special covenant with Davidic kings where he says, I'm going to, have your kingdom go on eternally. And that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. There were many good, there were many kings after David, many bad, some good, but there was one who was coming, the seed promised in Genesis 3.15. It's interesting, the word descendant there, and I believe it's verse 12 of chapter 7, is the same word as the word seed in Genesis 3.15 when God promises that there's going to be a seed who's going to crush the head of Satan. And this seed, this descendant, he will rule perfectly forever and ever. And this one is Christ. His earthly reign will begin in the millennium. It will continue on into all eternity. And so we rightly declare that he shall reign forever and ever. We're about to hear that song over and over, aren't we? Hallelujah, chorus. He shall reign forever and ever. I mean, that's connected to the Davidic covenant. Christ will reign forever and ever. David found great hope in that. He understood what he was being told in 2 Samuel 7. He understood what he was being told. And we find great hope in that as well. Our hope is not in King David, though he was a good king. He was a king after God's own heart. But he was a king, obviously, who had massive problems, who sinned greatly, and who God humbled. Friends, our king will return, and he will destroy all of his enemies and he will bring true peace to the earth. And we will worship him for all of eternity. And we're in that season now where we celebrate that one who has come and is going to come back.
Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for our time. So much information to cover, Father, in this book, as there are in all of these books. But thank you for the time we were able to spend thinking through this, this life of David, an example we have. The Lord, point us, direct our hearts to Christ, our perfect eternal King who will never, ever fail, who will reign forever and ever. He's the one we worship. He's the one we adore. He's the one we praise. He's the one we bow before and we submit to now. It's in his name we pray. Amen.